good morning or good afternoon or good evening everyone depending upon your location on this rotating globe and welcome to another edition live tonight of the other side of midnight a show in a place where um, almost anything can happen and it usually does and as I've said a million times before the things that used to be kind of confined to these hours of the pre-dawn darkness. By the way, we've uh, changed the clocks. We're now in uh, regular standard time. Daylight saving time ended uh, yesterday morning, or actually early this morning at 2 a.m. When, you know, those things that used to be confined to this time slot, they appear to have now been spread all around the dial and all around the clock, and they are happening 24-7. I mean, if you haven't lately looked... This planet is undergoing extraordinary changes, and the changes are accelerating. And a lot of the changes are not good, and uh, we're probably going to get into some of that tonight, because I'm, I'm, I'm of the growing opinion, based in part on our own research, that there are, and I'm using this term very generally, there are helping hands out there. When I say hoping, I'm meaning in an extraordinary, ironic sense. Um, There is something vying for the destiny of this planet, and all of them are not us. And as we go through the morning, that will become clearer and clearer. Um, We have an extraordinarily interesting conversation planned. But before we get to that, I do want to hit a couple of news items, some of which may be familiar to you and some of which may be uh, unfamiliar. Item number one, first of all, if you're new to the show, what you want to do is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. You want to click on tonight's banner, Stranger in a Strange Land, an academic secret hyperdimensional journey with our guest, Dr. Bruce Solheim. Click on that, that will take you to the guest page, to Dr. Solheim's guest page. Right under that, you will see Fast links to items. Click on my name. That will take you to my section of radio with pictures. And item number one, again, is La Palma in the Canary Islands. An eruption that began in September, and now we're in November. And every day it goes up, it goes down. There are changes. Um, in the last 24 hours, and this is this is bad. This could be very bad. Remember, the reason we're watching La Palma is because in 1949, a major eruption, an earthquake, split the island in two, and one half of it is kind of resting by a friction on the other half. And if there is a significant major earthquake, let's say six or seven, or if the ground swells too much, like a souffle, And you may not know this, but volcanoes, uh, when they trap magma underground, the associated gases literally push up the ground and they swell like souffles. Well, either one of these past a certain point could trigger the separation of part of the island from the other part of the island. And the part that is removed could slide ultimately at several hundred miles an hour into the Atlantic Ocean, creating a literal mega tsunami, which would not be good for everyone associated around the rim of the North Atlantic, as well as in the South Atlantic, the northern coasts of South America, the Caribbean islands, the Gulf of Mexico, the Gulf Coast of the United States, Mesoamerica, Central America. In other words, it would be a very, very, very bad hair day. So we're watching La Palma very carefully, and you should have the seismic alerts uh, on your smartphone. So if something major happens, you will get an alert. Why? Because the mega tsunami, as it races across the Atlantic, particularly for the east coast of the United States, could move inland when it grounds itself on the continental shelf by 20, 50, maybe even 60, 70 miles. And it would destroy everything in its path. That amount of water, we're talking 
billions of tons of water racing at several hundred miles an hour, six, seven hundred miles an hour. Now, the good news is if you hear that alert and you're on the East Coast, you have about nine hours of warning to take your go bag, which you have packed, and get in the car and leave as fast as possible. Um, That is a worst case scenario. The probability of that occurring is very, very low. The consequences of it occurring are extraordinarily high. So you divide one into the other, or you multiply one by the other, the probability, and that gives you uh, how, how nervous you should be. In other words, you should have La Palma on your smartphone and you should be watching very carefully. For instance, in the last 24 hours, the island has swelled, the ground has risen by 10 centimeters. There are 2.54 centimeters per inch. You can do the calculation. That's literally the ground rising by that amount. That is detectable by current state-of-the-art GPS. So if you have a civilian GPS, since the military is no longer censoring ultra-high resolution, you, if you're in La Palma, actually will see that you are somewhat higher tonight than you were last night because the ground is swelling from underground pressures. So this is something we've been watching it now since September. We should not let it off our radar screens. Again, it's a small probability, but the consequences could be absolutely catastrophic. So you need to pay attention. Item number two, we've been battling this global pandemic for almost two years now. And as you know, my position is that we are at war. Someone did this deliberately. They created the virus and they then distributed it. Uh, Everyone thinks it's China. I'm very, very skeptical because frankly, if it was China, why would it have been delivered to Wuhan and killed unknown thousands of people right in the heartland of China? Now you can say, okay, they just made a big mistake. It escaped from the lab, et cetera, et cetera. Well, those are all plausible scenarios, but let me lay one on you that I've talked about extensively. And that is that this was done from someone outside of this planet. The breakaways are my you know, uh, enemies of choice. And it was done to A, be a warning to China, which up until that time was a hidden secret client state of uh, the breakaways in this scenario. And number two, it was designed to infect as much of the earth as possible. Why? Because of the long-term, still almost completely unknown effects of COVID-19. I mean, there are so many conspiracy theories running around. It is difficult, if not impossible, for the average person, meaning someone with average resources, who doesn't have a medical background, who does not know who to trust, you know, where to find accurate information, where to find objective science. In other words, most people, it's almost impossible for them to judge the characters they see on stage because everybody has been tainted by an extraordinary propaganda campaign that lambasted everything associated with the pandemic, starting with the fact that it was created. I mean, you can go through and we will, in the coming weeks, we will potentially have a very significant program that I've been working on behind the scenes for some time with people that you can trust because they have been a major factor in international conventions against biological warfare, but it's taking us time to uh, set up such a program logistically. So in the meantime, every bit of news that comes out on COVID-19 is avidly devoured, avidly savaged, avidly attacked, avidly questioned, and all of this is legitimate provided it's done according to some kind of scientific process. You know, knowing someone on the internet who gives you a link and says, go here, and this person is telling the truth. I mean, that's almost less than useless. So that brings us to item number two. 
we now are facing a situation where a large number of people in in the number of hundreds of millions have been vaccinated by this extraordinary uh, campaign by multiple governments from China to Russia to the United States, uh, private corporations, government corporate uh, um, uh, cooperation to create in a record time a vaccine. And now we're encountering something which really has never occurred before in history, and that is a large group of people because of the propaganda against the vaccines and against the reality of COVID-19 who refuse to take the vaccine and all kinds of associated conspiracy theories with what it will do to you. Everything from changing your DNA to implanting nanofibers and making you a transmitter of some kind of future slave state. I mean, really, someone should package this and sell it as a movie or a novel. Point of fact is, in the United States alone, over a quarter of a million people have now died of COVID-19. Under normal circumstances, that number of extraordinary catastrophic death would warn everyone in the larger population that unless they do something, ultimately they will catch this and there is a finite, much larger probability than than La Palma that they will succumb, that they will go to a hospital and they will die, particularly if you're in certain very endangered age groups. So we now have a situation where unless the vaccines are distributed widely, this pandemic will never end. People who think they're immune, people who even get it, they can get it again and again because nothing, including natural immunity, confers an immortality where you never succumb to it after you've had it once or even twice. The vaccines are not 100% effective against keeping you from catching this disease. Even if you're vaccinated with two doses of the Pfizer or the Merck vaccine or one of the Johnson & Johnson, you can get it again. Those are called breakthrough cases. In other words, this virus, if it in fact was created, is specifically avoiding in an uncomfortably large percentage of situations the very idea of vaccination, which of course is not even talking about the propaganda around the concept of vaccinating someone against the pandemic disease. Into this conversation, which is incredibly polarized, it's incredibly blunt, it's incredibly propagandistic, it's impossible for the average person, again, to know who, without a background, is telling the truth on any side, there has been another factor entered. Pfizer has now developed, as well as Merck, a pill where if you find out from a test, an antigen test, that you have caught COVID-19, up until now, unless you subscribe to really off-the-books medications like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, neither of which are effective. And again, uh, I cannot document why that's true, but it is true and you can go and do your own research. Now we have mainstream medical treatments post-contracting the disease, which in fact will save your life. The Merck um, therapeutic, which was uh, published about two, three weeks ago and has been in trial, uh, is about 50% successful if you're of a certain age group in keeping you out of the hospital or keeping you from dying. 50-50, that's like tossing a coin. Do you or don't you? Well, you can increase your odds, you know, so for those that don't want to take a vaccine and want to wait till they get COVID, if they find out early in the in the first few days, they can then take the Merck pill and they have a 50-50 chance of not having a severe case and going to the hospital and a much smaller possibility of actually dying. 
Past week, Pfizer came out with their antiviral pill, which turns out under clinical trials to be something like 89% successful, meaning that if you are tested, if you take an antigen test and you take the test and you are tested positive for COVID, in the first three days, if you take this regimen, you have an 89% chance of avoiding the hospital and of dying. 89%. If you multiply that percentage by your natural immunity, the fact that if you contract it, if you're in a reasonable age group and not a, a senior citizen, the odds of you dying or contracting severe COVID are lower. You multiply these numbers together, you actually can really reduce the possibility that if you catch this, you can die. And that is a good thing. But you have to trust mainstream science to avail yourself of this potential therapeutic. And I know there are people out there who are listening to me who would rather take hydrochloroquine, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin than take a pill from a major pharmaceutical. Of course, those other two drugs are also made by major pharmaceutical companies. So I'm not quite sure where people will land. My recommendation is do your research, think of the stakes, think of the probability, and just like with Palma, De Palma, you multiply the two together. Personally, I believe that if you don't want to take the vaccine and you are availing yourself of these very cheap now, I mean, it costs 83 cents to take an anti, uh, uh, a, 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 antiviral test, an, a, an antibody test. I'm not talking about the PCR test. I'm talking about the ones you can pick up at the drugstore. 89 cents per test. If you test yourself once every three or four days, and if you find that your test is positive, and then you take this Pfizer COVID antiviral, you have an extraordinarily good chance of avoiding very severe disease or even dying. And those are odds that seem reasonable. All the other propaganda, all the other, you know, noise around this situation, I believe has been deliberately created so as to maximize the number of people on planet Earth who actually develop COVID. As to why? Well, then you have to look at the long-term effects, both known and unknown, of what happens when you get COVID, you survive, you recover, and then what? What was the ultimate objective behind creating COVID-19? That is a question that has to be answered, and that's a question that tonight no one has an answer to. But someday, they will. We just have to stick around long enough to find out what it is. Item number three, as you may or may not have noticed, uh, NASA has been scheduling and then rescheduling and then re-rescheduling two major space events uh, over the last several days. One has been the return of the Crew-2 from the SpaceX Dragon spacecraft to the International Space Station, to the Earth. They have been up there now several months, and their um, time has elapsed, and they are destined to come home, their watch having been served, to be replaced by Crew-3. number three. Well, the way this works because there's a time limit on how long spacecraft can remain within the rules parked at the space station. It now turns out because of the delay in sending up Crew-3, Crew-2 has to come home before Crew-3 can be sent up. And so all of that is going to take place on Monday. Uh, Monday morning, uh, Monday afternoon, um, Tuesday, and then Wednesday. Uh, Monday, Crew 2 returns in the evening, and on Wednesday, Crew 3 will be launched in the evening on a Falcon 9 rocket. You can find everything um, 
uh, you know, kind of up to date uh, on this situation by going to item number three in my radio with pictures. And again, you can reach that by connecting through the fast links under the banner at the top of the guest page. Item number four, Hubble. Remember Hubble, our amazing telescope, which has been in orbit for over 30 years, looking to the visible edge of the known universe, 13.7 billion light years out. Well, for the last month or so, Hubble has been stuck in what's called safe mode because of some instrumentation problems with sequencing, with ordering commands to and from the telescope. Remember, this telescope is 31 years old, and although some of the instruments and some of the hardware and some of the computers have been updated and replaced by previous shuttle missions, things now have really kind of aged. Uh, The last visit uh, to Hubble was many years ago, back during the last shuttle servicing mission, which was a couple of years before the shuttle itself was retired. So what NASA's doing, and you can read the story in item number four, they are turning on an instrument that has been idle on the telescope for 11 years in orbit, in the vacuum, circling the Earth every 90 minutes. And by turning that instrument on, as you'll read in the story, they're able to use its onboard computer processing memory to double-check and reformat commands to the main telescope computer, which are not, for some reason, being accepted. In other words, NASA is trying to do what they have done best for, you know, almost 60 years, which is to make the best of a bad situation, to turn lemons into lemonade, to do long-distance repairs, Oh, that the rest of the human condition could be uh, attacked and processed and solved so easily. Um, Let's see, is there anything else I should bring everyone up to speed on? Well, I I guess not. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce my guest of the evening, who has an extraordinary story to tell with an ending still to be written. And then we're going to go to a break and then we will launch into the substance of a very interesting Sunday night here on the other side of midnight in 2021. Um, My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Olav Solheim, who was born in Seattle, Washington, to Norwegian immigrant parents. He was the first person in his family to go to college. Uh, Bruce served for six years in the U.S. Army as a jail guard. We're going to have to ask about that and later is a warrant officer, helicopter pilot, and is now a disabled veteran retired from the U.S. military. He has also worked as a defense contractor for Boeing, member of major Seattle company, for five years. Bruce earned his Ph.D. in history from Bowling Green State University in 1993. He is currently a distinguished professor of history at Citrus College in Glendora, California. He was also a Fulbright professor and scholar in 2003 at the University of Tromso in northern Norway, a place I actually happen to know something about, and I'm sure that will come up as we have our conversation. Dr. Solheim has published 12 books and has written 10 plays, six of which have been produced. The Bronze Star won two awards, that was the name of one of them, from the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. The Epiphany, another one, was commissioned by the Kingdom of Norway and funded for a full production run with the original American cast. Dr. Solheim is also co-founder of Lockdown Theater, which has produced four stream plays online live with remote actors during the current COVID-19 pandemic. Bruce has lived, apart from his mainstream activities, a very interesting life. Now it says here paranormal. You guys all know how I hate that term because it separates this reality from a series of other realities that we talk about extensively on this show. So he's lived this kind of double hyperdimensional life since the age of four having experienced angels, demons, ghosts, 
cryptids, telepathy, psychokinesis, mediumship, and yes, alien contact. He has published a trilogy of paranormal books about his personal experiences, Timeless, Timeless Deja Vu, and Timeless Trinity, and most recently published a book about his contact with an ancient alien mystic titled Enzar, the Progenitor. He has also published two comic books featuring an alien hybrid character named Snark, and will publish a new comic book called Dr. Jekyll, Alien Hunter in 2022. He is currently married to the love of his life, named Ginger, who is also, it turns out, a helicopter pilot licensed. They have four children and two grandsons. So without further ado, Bruce Solheim, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. <clears throat> well, thank you, Richard. That was that was quite an introduction. I, I guess I have to try to live up to that. <laughs> well, you got two and a half hours. Hey, we're we're just a few steps away from the bottom of the hour, and okay. as I have told my uh, guests many times, you know we have breaks at the top and the bottom. If you need to go and get something, if your throat is parched, if you need to get rid of something, uh, we can take time. We can improvise. We can. Uh, um, well, what's the word? Vamp. I think that's an ancient expression in the theater. We can vamp. So we got about a minute. Um, how did you decide to finally bring your double lives together in front of the uh, staff and collegial academics at Citrus College? Well, that was a uh, uh, just a long story short. Well, it's not that long of a story, but uh, my friend Gene... Uh, who's also a Norwegian-American. We grew up together with Norwegian parents. Uh, he came to me in a vision uh, about a month after he passed away and uh, spoke to me, interacted with me, and told me it was time to start telling my stories and not to be afraid to do so, because I had been, up to that point, afraid to do so. So that was October 2016. Oh. And that's what pushed me. To, to do it and then I I'd been collecting all my stories I've written everything down I just hadn't published it and talked to very few people about it so he is the one who nudged me and uh, that's why I started writing the books that's why I started speaking publicly and even teach a paranormal course I know you don't like the term but <laughs> actually I, th I I think that it, it you know the paranormal is really normal so that's the way I look at it but yeah I know what you mean well if but, I'm if, uh, if I was a CIA and I was trying to separate people from the larger reality mm -hmm. I would create a term that every time people hear it they think oh that's that funny stuff it's not something right. I should take seriously so exactly. I really argue against the concept of para because para mm -hmm. means not real, not really, not, not, not fully, you know. And if it's normal, it's simply a larger spectrum of normality that most people are not attuned to. I'll tell you what, hold yeah. it there. We are mm -hmm. at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim. We're going to be talking about his successful fusion after many, many years of a secret double life looking at what I term hyperdimensional realities, because frankly, they appear to be the intrusion of a larger physics on a terrestrial three-dimensional frame. We're going to do that. We're gonna talk about his uh, day job, which is teaching, among other things, American history. And boy, are we making some history at present, as you may have gleaned from the first uh, 25 minutes of my conversation at the opening of the show. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
72 vaccines, your children will get, um, as of right now, before they're 18, and that number is doubling very quickly in the near future. And guys, the thing that bothered me so much is I had no idea back then in 98 that there were a lot of people talking about vaccines. But what I know now and what I learned in 2010, and your listeners have to understand this, in 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that all vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. And let me say that again. Um, 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that all vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. This should be very eye-opening to anybody out there because what they're telling you that now is if you vaccinate your children, you have to deal with the consequences because they've just told you that all vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. And more to that now, in 2018, Robert Kennedy Jr. and Doug Bigtree put in the Health and Freedom of Information Act to have the safety studies released, okay? If your listeners don't know this, in 1986, Ronald Reagan passed the Vaccine Injury Act, which said the vaccine companies are exempt of any and all liability. But Reagan said, look, if we're going to give them blanket liability, we've got to at least make them do safety studies every other year. Not every year, but every other year. So they sued to have those safety studies released. And we've always heard that vaccines are safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. But when they got the report back, it was 100% empty. Not one single safety study has been done on any of the vaccines since 1986. This should be very, very, very disturbing to all you guys. And that's what began to wake me up as far as vaccines were my children back in 98 when the medical doctors couldn't give me the safety studies. Guys, this is Christopher Key. Never forget it. It's Christ Ofer. Christ is in me. He's in my name. Never forget my last name. It's Key, K-E-Y. God's given us the keys to unlock the doors that Satan never wanted unlocked, and we do it for our children. I so enjoyed the show tonight. The other side of the news is beyond fabulous. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. As I said in the opening of the show tonight, it's really almost impossible for someone without extraordinary resources to know on the subject of almost anything who now to believe. And I, of course, do not agree with the guests who just uh, spoke from the other side of the news. However, I do believe in the Uh, First Amendment. I do believe that all points of view have a right to be heard. That's why we have on this network the other side of the news. And though I don't agree, I agree with the idea it needs to be heard. We're back now with our guest of the morning, Dr. Bruce Solheim. Uh, Bruce, have you encountered in academia as much of a polarization on this uh, concept of how do you know truth when you hear it or read it or see it, as we have here on the show? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> you know, we're pretty divided on our on our campus. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the traditional idea that you hear is that, you know, most, you know, politically speaking anyway, that professors or academe, academics are, uh, you know, predominantly liberal and so forth. And I, I find that to be generally true, but not necessarily. And in terms of the vaccine, yes, we get, uh, in fact, we just had to put a, a, there was a petition that just came out from our faculty uh, asking for a mandatory uh, vaccine uh, on campus for all students and all staff, including faculty. 
and the administration hasn't uh, hasn't done that yet, even though most of the community colleges in California and many of the universities have already mandated vaccines on campus. So it's uh, it, it is a polarizing issue. It, it, uh, it I, I don't think it really should be, but but it's turned out that way. And uh, so I you know, there's it, it, if you ever go to a staff meeting with uh, faculty, it's one of the most, it, it can be very frustrating, it can be very amusing because everybody's an expert, you know, and everybody wants to be heard and uh, they just talk over each other. And there's, you know, it's, it's, it is frustrating, but sometimes it does, it does make me laugh. It just people pontificate and, and uh, I just sit back and listen and, but in situations where it's literally, at some point, a matter of life and death, mm-hmm. how is the human race, you're an historian, how has the human race dealt with this problem before, or have we never had this problem before? Is this a product of social media, incredible democratization of all kinds of points of view, political players who have lots of money who push certain agendas for nefarious reasons who have devalued the very idea of objective scientifically testable truth who will attack any institution regardless of their background or credentials or credibility based on track record with information that most people even with the assistance of the internet have almost no capability of getting to the bottom in terms of researching who's real, who's not real, who's putting forth lies, and who's trying to get them killed. No, I uh, I agree. I tell my students when we study uh, the uh, Cold War, we talk about uh, propaganda, and and well, in World War II as as well. And I I tell the students you're going to be propagandized every single day of your life all day long as long as you're awake and it could be from governments our government our own government foreign governments commercial advertisers special interest groups and and the the social media just makes it uh, and you know the 24-hour news cycle just there it's un it's unrelenting the information flow and trying to discern you know especially for a young person trying to discern what could be the truth or the kernels of truth that are hidden in the uh, in the twisting of information. Uh, it, it's a challenge for them. It, I mean, they have the whole world at their fingertips, but yet they have, you know, they don't have any 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 feel of, of what could and probably is the truth because they get bombarded constantly and it never, it, it's just overwhelming. It's overwhelming to them. One and, of the uh, one of the yeah. shows that I'm trying to put together, and I've had some logistical problems. Uh, there was a very well-known epistemologist who agreed to come on the show and talk about, you know, epistemology is the science of how do we know what we know. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, as soon as he learned that we deal in a wide range of, I'm going to use the terrible term, paranormal material. He kind of freaked out, and he didn't want to come on until his book, a book on epistemology, had had a significant amount of time to find its audience, because he felt that he would be uh, uh, blackballed by people in the community. Primarily, he wanted to be fably reviewed by his peers, by other academics, and he felt that even appearing on the show would be a black mark. That's how much people, you know, are, are, are kowtowing to the idea of name calling and association and reputation as opposed to, you know, looking at substance. So it's now been, I think, about six months since we opened Hailing Frequencies. And I think I'm getting him to where he's more comfortable. This is someone who has a major set of credentials in the field. You know, he's both involved in government agencies that every day have to figure out what's real and what's not. He's also um, at a, at a major uh, government center, which means he has that credibility with his peers. And I want to have him come on and spend about three hours talking about how do we figure this stuff out when most people, even with the internet, 
are hopelessly outmatched because no one is teaching how do we know what we know. Right. No, it's, 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 uh, yeah, for, for young people. Well, if you look back in our history, you know, the, the it's in not the early... just for young people. I know people well, it's, my yeah, it's, age it's for, who it's, are it's privy to propaganda. Exactly. It has nothing to do with age. It has to do with predisposition, I believe, and I could be dead wrong about this, but whether you're left brain or right brain, whether you're more analytically uh, inclined, that you like data, you like assembling information, you like cross-checking one set of information against another set, you look at sources. In other words, we don't teach students, certainly now, but we haven't for a very long time, how do you figure out the world? Because the world has asymptotically gotten a million times more complex. And it, as you just said, it comes at you 24-7, like trying to drink from Niagara Falls. Yeah. No, I I, I agree. What I was going to say was that in, in colonial times in, in America, that was uh, most people, and it's probably true around the world, that most people stayed within a 30-mile, uh, a uh, uh, you know, range of where where they were born and they and the only news they got were people coming through visitors on horseback or whatever or or if they had newspapers that could or flyers or that could be distributed and and now we have a, a situation where it the flow of information both true and untrue and partially true is is like you said is just flooding constantly and uh, to try to develop a, a worldview, divide, you know, it, it's, it, it is not just challenging for young people. It's for everybody. But, you know, because I, I teach primarily 18 to 24-year-olds, although I get older students <laughs> as well, that's my, big, that's my big concern is to try to prepare them. And, and it is extremely challenging. And, uh, and then, you know, people are very sensitive, uh, more than I've ever seen before. And, uh, and and talking about ac- academics, you know, I, I had a, a former student of mine. I've been teaching at Citrus for 24 years. Uh, she is now a professor uh, at a at a research college and is doing very well. And when I published my first book, the Timeless book, um, I gave a copy to her mother, and she and her mother gave it to her, and she said. Uh, to pass on some information to me through her mother. And her mother told me, uh, yeah, my daughter said you've now committed academic suicide. Mm. And, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I thought, wow, okay. And uh, I, I know that, that you know, there, there would be certain, if I wanted to change to different college or university, which I don't, uh, it would probably come up in my publications, you know, and, and it would be a challenge to, to, you know, if I was, you know, to certain, certain colleges and universities, but uh, I'm not worried about that. I'm going to retire, you know, in a couple of years or whatever. But uh, so that's not a concern of mine. But uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, scientists who depend on funding, you know, uh, and they are very, very concerned about how far they'll stick their neck out, even though most of them, I think it was Dean Radin of the uh, the chief scientist at IONS, Institute for Noetic Sciences, he said he did. A, they did a survey, and about 80% of the scientists and engineers and technicians that they um, surveyed said that they have had a, uh, uh, I'll use the word paranormal again, experience. <laughs> and uh, so they have had them, they've had these experiences, but they can't acknowledge it publicly. And of course, that leaves us in a, in a bind, you know, in terms of credibility. And, uh, you know, I have people when I shared more stuff on Facebook of what I'm doing, especially the Anzar stuff, uh, you know, this ancient alien mystic, there are people that attack me and say that I'm a fear monger and, you know, trying to spread disinformation or rumors or. Oh, you should try maintaining publicly that the NASA has known <laughs> of ancient extraterrestrial ruins all over the solar system for almost yeah. as long as it's been an agency has been yeah. lying to the American people and see what happens to you then. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, no, it's it. You know, there's there's people that that. Well, I, I guess there's professional debunker people too. But, but yeah, I, I uh, it, it's it's not easy for for people in in broadcasting or in uh, academe, you know, to to tell what what they know, 
what they have experienced and that's that's what i've been doing and have been unafraid of doing since uh 2016. see i don't know how much you know about my background but i used to have some of the similar problems you had up till 2016 and that i was mainstream mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. i was cronkite science advisor when we went to the moon i, I did actually, read about that yeah i Very actually cool. played a really small but i thought significant role in the Apollo project itself, I was asked to write the section on the moon for the Grumman Aircraft Corporation uh, for press all over the world. Um, and Grumman, as you know, was the company, the aerospace company on Long Island, which built the lunar module, which landed uh, the astronauts uh, on the moon and returned them safely to lunar orbit. So. In that press book, <clears throat> which was nominated for a uh, Aviation Space Writers Award, I was up against stiff competition, so I didn't win. But as everybody says at the Academy Awards, it's a tremendous honor to be nominated. Well, I was yes. nominated for the section on the moon. And, you know, uh, there is an academic doing a, uh, a um, uh, Ph.D. paper on our coverage of Apollo and I've had several conversations over the last couple of years with him, and it's going to be memorialized in his PhD thesis to be turned into a commercial book. So, you know, at some point, history does tend to come out. It's just incredibly controversial at the time it's made. And of course, you as an historian know that full well. Um, someday you and I might actually be part of some uh, future history if we if we just keep our heads down and keep doing what we're doing yeah future vindication <laughs> well to me it's not so much about vindication <clears throat> it's about moving the river i yeah. mean the reason that i have done all this research over you know 40 years now into extraterrestrial ruins you know which because i think it will change humanity it will give yeah. the human race a connective glue to realize that we're all in this boat together. And there may be some folks out there, some bad guys, who do not have our best interest at heart. And they're not gonna arrive with spaceships and ray guns and bombing cities. They're gonna do something much more disastrous. They could mm -hmm. give us a pandemic. They could then take away all tools for information so nobody knows who to trust and they simply stand back and watch civilization on Earth collapse of its own weight because we can't get ourselves out of the way to figure out what's truth and what's lies. Yeah, it's it, more insidious. Yeah. Incredibly insidious, which yeah. again makes me think that it's not aliens doing it. It's part of what I call the extended family some of which are not here, they're out there. And that's a very, very long story. And we may bump up against it uh, later on in the morning. So let me, let me go back. We got about 10 minutes in this uh, half hour. Let me go back to the very beginning before you were concerned about academia and I was concerned about NASA and credibility and all that. What happened at your grandmother's house 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle uh, many decades ago that almost led to you not being on the other side of midnight tonight. Yeah, I I was uh, visiting with uh, my brother and my mother and father, and we uh, that was the first time they returned to to uh, to Norway, which was when I was four years old, and uh, since they immigrated in 1948 after the war, and we were staying with my grandmother on this remote island, and uh, there's no hospitals there. I got very very sick. I could barely move my arms and legs. I couldn't move my head from side to side. My neck was totally stiff. I had a high fever. And uh, I was lying down in this little bed my grandmother had in her kitchen in this old farmhouse. And I remember the beams in the ceiling, you know, all, all the details of it. In fact, the house is still, my brother and I still own that house. Wow. It hasn't changed much. <laughs> and uh, my grandmother had this little bed because she had a bad leg and she, you know, would take naps there uh, on that little bed. And I was lying there crying and my parents and my cousins next door and everybody were coming over and saying, oh, this is what happens, but, you know, when you get polio, you know, and all these terrible stories and or this is what happened. And then, 
you know, yeah. your cousin died the next day. And so I was, I, I was little, but I understood this was terrible. And I, I drifted off to sleep somehow and everybody had left uh, the, the kitchen. And when I woke up in this little bed, I saw a bright light, warm, bright light above me. And it wasn't the light in the ceiling or anything. It was, it was a, an angelic form, you know, and uh, I felt like everything was going to be okay. I wasn't worried anymore. I felt fine. And I went back to sleep. And when I woke up, my mom and my grandmother were there and I got up and jumped around and I was totally fine. Wow. I, I, had, been, I had been miraculously healed. And I told them about the bright light and the feeling uh, that there was somebody there, you know, some kind of what I would now describe as an angelic presence. And my mother and my grandmother both said it was, it was, uh, it was a, a miracle. And that was my guardian angel that saved me. And, uh, so yeah, I was I was fine, and it, and it was a miracle. And I think what that did <clears throat> is it opened a doorway for me, and uh, I I never looked back. You know, I just I, I knew that there was more than what's what meets the eye directly. You know, in the in the subjective reality that we have, and of course my mom was very psychic, and her mom was psychic. So there's a, you know, there's a connection there, and. Uh, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of, of this uh, this journey that I've been on. And uh, <clears throat> when I went to school, I, you know, a couple of years later. This is back in the I, States. Yeah, I was back in, in Seattle. I, I realized very quickly that I couldn't tell my teacher <clears throat> and the other students about my my miraculous experiences or my invisible playmates that were very real to me. They I would call them imaginal, you know, because they were real to me. And uh, I well, got wait, in trouble. You're you're what? You're going to school. You're six now. Yeah, five. I remember it was in kindergarten. I was talking to my teacher, and she said, "You know that isn't real. You can't. I don't want you to talk about that. You're you know frightening people or whatever." And I so told you're my talking mom, about your friends that the other kids can't see, and the right. teacher slaps you down metaphorically yes. and says, "You can't." You know. <clears throat> I told my mom, and she said, uh, "We know they're real." But in some, you might not want to be talking to your teacher or other people wow. about it. So that kind of kept me, oh, okay, there's How a certain. How we program from the earliest age. Yeah. So I'm, I, I was being trained, you know, and uh, my mom acknowledged it. She knew that it was real and was real to her as well. So, but I had to learn how to deal with the outside world, which was not friendly to hearing about this. Okay. So let's pause here. Yeah. What, what kind yep. of. What kind of beings at the age of five or six were you uh, talking to and seeing? Well, uh, yeah, they're, I, I call them imaginal beings. I, I had names for them. Uh, one I called, and I wasn't very creative with names at the time, but I called them John <laughs> and Johnny. Johnny was a little kid, just like me. And uh, John was an older looking man kind of uh, dark hair, a dark beard, and not very friendly, but he was very protective. So those are the two. So these are the two human beings. They one, presented themselves as being human. Yeah, one much or older. Humanoid. Okay. Yep. And a protector, a very strong, silent type that wasn't very friendly, but always there kind of protecting me and Johnny, who was more like a kid like me, you know, my age presented himself that way. And, uh, you know that. No, wait, wait. Those you, the, you, you said that now twice. Are you are you intimating, or are you going to say that these were not really humans? That they were something or someone else? Well, I I I believe that John was a uh, the older. Was an extra. Yeah, was the extraterrestrial, and I'm not sure about Johnny, but I'm pretty sure that that John was an extraterrestrial that was protecting me. Now, when you say protecting, how? Uh, I mean, well, these they, are non-corporeal beings. I presume they didn't throw things across the room and attack, no. you know, burglars and stuff like that. So what do you mean by protecting you? They were watching over me, and there was a there was an incident in 1964. How old were you? I was, I was six then. Ah. And uh, in 1964, uh, there was a uh, – well, this is kind of a longer story. Hey, we got so, time. And if we don't oh, okay, yeah. if we don't so finish anyway, it now, we'll – Finish it after the top of the hour. Okay, cool. Yeah. So uh, 
we lived on a on a uh, in Seattle on a on a uh, kind of a hilly area, and above our house was a Nike missile site, a Nike missile site. So that's always interesting. And the the people that lived in the house just above ours, I would go up there and they would babysit me occasionally. Well, the, the man there was there was something wrong with him. He, I, even as a kid, I knew there was something wrong with him. Uh, he was you know doing weird things uh, like uh, hiding in closets and making neighborhood kids come and go into the dark closet with him. And I wouldn't do it because I there's something wrong. Was he mentally ill or was he evil? He, he was evil. Oh yeah. He was, as it turned out, he was he was a child molester. Oh boy! So I I was able to avoid him. He would give kids and tried to give me a little Dixie cup filled with what he said was Kool Aid, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was uh, I know now that it was alcohol. I knew it was something wrong with it. It didn't smell like Kool Aid, so I didn't drink it. But I uh, um, yeah. So I I had an intervention from a uh, what I call an extraterrestrial being in 1964 who I now know uh, is my first uh, experience with An- who I know now is Anzar. So he stepped in there and uh, told me I didn't have to go up to that house anymore and my parents would be fine with it. And uh, he presented himself. He was very tall and, uh, you know, like almost seven feet tall and kind of scary looking. He had the, this upside down teardrop shaped head and slant, large slanted eyes. And I told him he looked like a monster. And he said, uh, I might look like a monster to you, but the man up in that house is the real monster. And you, I don't want you going up there anymore. So this is a third being that appears in your life. Yeah. What happened to the older John, the protector? Well, he was working with him. So that, so Anzar wasn't going to be there all the time. So whenever I was outside, I would have John and Johnny. So, so they did shifts? Why. No, just John was there. Uh, no, I, I mean, and, did they kind of spell each other 24-7? Someone was watching you. There was, yeah, there was always somebody watching me. Yeah. Wow. Always somebody watching me. Did you ever ask why? I I have asked Anzar, and he said that we are connected. That's what he's told me. You and <laughs> That he. we are connected. Yeah, okay. that we are connected. Yeah. So that's the, uh, the, the yeah, they, these discoveries have, have come over the years. You know, I knew this stuff had happened, but I didn't quite put it all together. And that was my first experience with, with Anzar. And then now I, up to the, the, the moment, you know, the, the, yesterday I took a spirit walk and talked to him. And so I'm in communication with him and, uh, yeah. And he's been helping me and guiding me and, and giving me information about, uh, you know, not that he calls them predictions. He calls them preparations for things that uh, are likely to happen. So it's all in the branding. Which <laughs> 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 is why I prefer the term <clears throat> hyperdimensional to paranormal. Yeah, yeah, yeah because uh, you know, it, it's yeah, it, it, it is a problematic term. And, uh, you know, that I always say the paranormal is really normal. The supernatural is really natural, and. And uh, I've just had this, my life has been, to me, this is, this is normal, you know, to have people who are passed away talking to me and seeing things that other people don't see, you know, that, that is, that has been my life. I'll tell you what, hold it there. We're we're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim, who by day is a uh, mild manner reporter. No, that's another one. Mild Matter Professor at a mainstream college in Southern California. And by night, going back to the age of four, on a little island north of the Arctic Circle, where he almost died, he met someone, something, some other. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We'll return to Dr. Solheim and an extraordinary journey when we do indeed return. Don't touch that dial.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.